0: Let's go ahead and pray before we get going. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this church and the privilege that we have to be here on any given Sunday, but in particular this Sunday. This is the day that you've made, and help us to rejoice and be glad in it. And so thank you for this day and this privilege of being here together as your people, encouraging one another singing songs of praise, uh, reminding ourselves of, of wonderful things uh, to give ourselves hope and encouragement and joy and all of those things. Father, help us and thank you. Thank you for the, the church that you have put here and the people that you have put here. And thank you for your word that you come to us through your word and you work on us through your word by the power of the Holy Spirit as, as, as they both bear witness to your son, Jesus Christ. Um, But I just pray that as we turn now more specifically and with more focus on your word, that you would help us hear what you have to say, that you would help us to see you more clearly and to love you more as a result of what we hear this morning and out of that love, that our love for one another would grow and that we would be the people you have made us to be. Father, I pray that... um, Whatever burdens we might be bearing, whatever joys we might have, we would receive those from your hand, and we would right now lay them at your feet, knowing that you love us, you care for us, and you know what's best for us, you want what's best for us, and help us to joyfully, willingly submit to you and your plans, your words, and your ways. God, thank you for your love for us, thank you for your power, and that you've come toward us. Most magnificently in this Christmas season. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we are continuing in our sermon series called A Common Christmas, which is following the prescribed readings from the Book of Common Prayer. The selected readings for this morning, the third Sunday of Advent, are Isaiah 35, Psalm 146, James 5 in Matthew 11:2 through 15. Um Isaiah 35, Psalm 146 and Matthew all 11 all share something very obvious and and actually I didn't I didn't know that Rick was going to mention this song and frankly I did not I'm not as familiar with that song as I'm I am with some others so I looked up the lyrics and frankly I don't live under a rock so I know Mary did you know but as I was looking at the lyrics I saw uh that there's a bridge in the song in the bridge says the, has these words it says the blind will see the deaf will hear the dead will live again the lame will leap the dumb will speak the praises of the lamb and that's what we're going to read about this morning in 3 of our 4 passages Isaiah 35, Psalm 146, and Matthew 11 all speak about the blind receiving their sight, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, and a whole host of other healings and restorations that take place. But these deeds, no matter how miraculous, how impactful, how important they might be, they're not the point of any one of those passages. They're merely markers and signs of God's unfolding grand plans. And this morning we're going to begin by looking at Matthew 11. So we're going to go ahead and open your Bibles, hopefully, to Matthew 11, starting in verse 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in one of the seats in front, underneath one of the seats in front of you, and the words will be on the screen behind me as well. We're going to begin reading in verse 2 And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Continues. In verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? a prophet. Yes, I tell you and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was. It is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John and if you are willing to accept it he is Elijah who is to come he who has ears to hear let him hear as always with the bible there are many many avenues and routes we could take this morning um, but But this morning, as these passages are tied together with this common thread, we see that common thread appearing here in Matthew as Jesus's answer to John's question. Jesus answers answers John's question by saying, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. But what was John's question? Who are you? But that's not quite how John asked the question is it, and the difference matters if someone were to walk through these doors this morning and started selling drinks and snacks like a vendor at a football game, we would ask, who are you? We probably wouldn't ask, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? Those are very different questions. John was waiting for someone like Jesus. And in prison, John had heard reports of Jesus' teaching and ministry. He had questions, and so he asked them, Are you the one we're waiting for? And where did that question come from? Well, obviously it came from John, but why is John waiting? What is he looking for? Why is that his question? Well, it's because John knew the scriptures. John knew the Old Testament, and his question was, Came from the Old Testament. He preached from the Old Testament. He was familiar with God's Word there. Last week we read from Matthew 3, and in Matthew 3, John the Baptist rebukes and warns the Pharisees and Sadducees with language dripping with Old Testament imagery. And from his rich knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, John was expecting the Lord to come with vengeance destroying the wicked, consuming them like a blazing fire. Malachi 4, verses 1, 3, and 5 say this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Skipping to verse three, and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Verse five, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. John believed that the day of the Lord would come with judgment and condemnation. In fact, Jesus himself links John the Baptist to the prophet Elijah in Matthew 11, verse 14, that we just read a few moments ago. There in Matthew, he says, he is Elijah to come. And here in Malachi 4, the prophet Elijah is linked with God's coming judgment, a blaze, a fire, on the day of the Lord. John wasn't crazy or cranky for expecting judgment. He simply acted upon his well-informed Convictions. He preached a message of repentance, not with the promise of blessings and comfort, not because that's not true, not because they're not there, but his message was warnings of penalty and judgment. In fact, John the Baptist was imprisoned for his sharp words of rebuke against the unrighteousness of King Herod. Now, we might guess that John was expecting a bit more demanding, someone a bit more demanding, someone a bit more decisive, more imposing and forceful with matters of holiness and obedience and the law. And it's an expectation revealed to us by his question. Are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? And how does Jesus answer? He tells John The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus' answer to John wasn't a flat-out rebuke. John was not totally off-base and wrong. He was just missing the mark. And so Jesus responds and redirects him. And we've already said that John would have been familiar with the Old Testament. John's question was an Old Testament question. So it should come as no surprise that Jesus gives him an Old Testament answer. For this, we'll turn to our second reading this morning, which is Isaiah 35, starting in verse 1. Again, the words should be on the screen. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness." The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The heart of Isaiah 35 is the kingdom of heaven. We could spend time on the imagery of Isaiah 35, looking at each verse and each illustration or image and figuring out what it means and what it has to say. But I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees this morning. This is a text, Isaiah 35, about the kingdom of heaven. And the most important thing about the kingdom of heaven is not where it is. It's not even what it's like. It's not even when we will get there. The most important thing about the kingdom of heaven is who is in charge. Who is the king? A kingdom is defined by its king. A kingdom without a king is no kingdom at all. It might be a people. It might be a land. But it's not a kingdom. But the king of this kingdom in Isaiah 35, this heavenly kingdom, is able to make deserts blossom like beautiful flowers with the strength of cedars. The king of heaven brings water into dry lands and drives away the scavengers who feast on the dead. The king of heaven restores what was broken. The king of heaven injects life and beauty and glory where there was only death and desolation. And notice in those verses the timing of these things happening. Isaiah 35 verses 4 and 5 say, He will come and save you, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. When Jesus tells John that the blind see, the deaf hear, and the lame walk, he is saying salvation is here. He is proclaiming to John with those Old Testament words, I am the king of heaven. I have come to save you and see the healing that I bring. As a matter of fact, the passage of Malachi that we read from moments ago includes this kind of description. We skipped over this verse intentionally, maybe a little like John might have skipped over it in his mind. But it's Malachi 4 verse 2 and it says... But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. At Christmas, we rejoice in the coming of our savior. But we must remember that our savior born in Bethlehem is the mighty king of heaven. Our salvation does not end with the washing away of our sins. That's only the beginning. Our salvation ends in the kingdom of heaven with the mighty healer as our king. As it's written in verse 10 there, Isaiah thirty five ten, everlasting joy shall be upon our heads. We shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is who Jesus claims to be with his answer to John the Baptist. This is what Jesus is claiming to bring with those words. And this powerful promise comes with a call to action. Again, looking at Isaiah 35 verses 3 and 4. Strengthen your weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. I believe that verse is quoted in the book of Hebrews that we finished several weeks ago in a very similar context. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Be strong. Take heart. God is on your side. And if you don't believe me, look around and consider what christmas is about god sent his son to come and save you he sent his son into the world to heal us to make us whole to forgive us of our sins he sent his son to die for you and for me for the sins of the world that we might be forgiven and restored and brought into his kingdom God is for you. He is on your side. And the Lord is a healer. He raises up life where there was none. Now it's possible to boil, I think, the whole message of the Bible. This might be, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. But I think you can take this one sentence and apply it and read it into all of Scripture. And it's this. Trust in God and take heart. Trust in God and take heart. Trust God and have the heart to do what he says. Trust God and have the courage to follow him and obey him. Do you know who God says he is? Because if we're going to trust God, we have to know who he is. So do you know who he says he is? Jesus here is saying, I am God. He's saying that he is the king of a kingdom of healing and refreshment and peace and righteousness and rest and abundance. That's who he says he is. Do you know that? And then do you trust that God is who he says he is? It's one thing to know who he says he is, but do you trust who he he says he is? Do you trust, do you believe that these miracles really happened? That these things we read about really happened and that they really do point to a heavenly reality better than anything we can imagine. Do you know who God says he is? Do you believe he is who he says he is? And do you trust that God will do what he says he will do? Do you trust Jesus' kingdom will come? Trust God and take heart. If your answer is yes to those questions of knowing who God is, trusting he is who he says he is, and trusting that he'll do what he says he will do, if your answer is yes to those questions, then strengthen your weak hands and firm your feeble knees and say to your anxious heart, be strong, fear not, because our God is a God who saves. Our God is a God of life. Which brings us very nicely to our third passage This morning, which is Psalm 146. i I believe that in the book of common prayer, the Psalms are often set up as uh, to be a response. Um, So you read something and then you read a Psalm in response to that. And and honestly, this morning, they knew what they were doing all these hundreds of years ago, picking this Psalm because there aren't very many better ways to respond in the Bible than this one. So Psalm 146, we're reading all of it, starting in verse one. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. We not only take heart and find courage and strength in Jesus, but we smile and rejoice. We're not unhappily courageous or begrudgingly triumphant as we head into battle. We praise the Lord. And praise is not something we can fake, at least not with God. You might be able to offer fake praise to people at work, but you can't get that by God. Praise is the natural reaction of a soul who knows the good that has been given to it. It's not something you have to manufacture. We can't fake it, but it's not something you just try harder to do. If you find your praise is lacking, you don't need to praise harder. You need to look more closely at God and at yourself. You need to properly see the severity of your situation. That we are all born in sin, separated from God, rebels, deserving death and punishment, and all the judgment that we could read about in the Old Testament ought to fall on our heads. That is our situation. And when we know the severity of our situation and we see in response the scale of God's mercy towards us, the praise should rise up the same way you might scream when you get scared. The way your knee goes bump when you sit at the doctor's office. It ought not be something we have to manufacture and try harder on. It is a response to a soul or of a soul that has been made alive. And fitting with this text of, of Psalm 146, we also need to remember that it is the everlasting God whom we serve. We don't put our trust in princes in worldly powers who promise us so much until they're elected and all of their campaign promises disappear. We don't trust in princes and worldly powers and authority, movers and shakers who will nevertheless one day die, handing over their powers to someone else. And that someone else might not share their convictions or their capabilities, and we might be left hanging out to dry. Our courage and strength is in the Lord who reigns forever, who made everything, everything that we know was made by him, and he sovereignly rules over it all. We rejoice in that. We rejoice because he is a healer. We rejoice because he is king. We rejoice because his kingdom knows no end. Which brings us nicely to our final reading this morning, which is James 5, starting in verse 7. It says this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. I just, here we go that you may not be judged. Let me start that over. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James 5 teaches us, to live at the slow, steady, patient, steadfast pace of farmers working and waiting for their harvest. Immediacy is woven into the fabric of our culture. Everything is measured by speed and efficiency. We want faster internet, faster phones, faster technology, faster, faster, faster. We want our money to be more efficient. We want our money to make more and to make more, more quickly. Everything is speed and efficiency. And this need for speed can quickly cultivate impatience in us without us even realizing it as it raises our expectations of how quickly things ought to happen But the things of God are often slow. The lessons God teaches are not learned in hours or even days, but sometimes years, lifetimes, generations. Spiritual strength, like physical strength, isn't achieved in a moment. It's not sustained in a moment. It is a slow, steady, patient, steadfast plotting like farmers waiting for harvest. That doesn't mean there's no work to be done. (laughs) Farmers are definitely working and the work is hard. That doesn't mean the work is easy. What it means is the work can't be rushed. When you face suffering, take heart the coming of the Lord is at hand. But God doesn't measure time like we do. Second Peter 3.8 tells us that a thousand years is like one day with God. What seems far away to us is always at hand for Jesus Christ, our Lord. So remain steadfast. Remember that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He will not forget you. He does not forget his own. But that's not all James 5 offers to us. The rest of the passage is relevant for us this morning as well. We won't read it. It will be on the screen, and I'll draw your attention to several of the verses. But as we patiently work and watch for this coming kingdom, our lives ought to take a certain shape. Verse 12 instructs us that we ought to mean what we say and say what we mean. We should live with such integrity that an oath doesn't make our word any more trustworthy. Let our yes be yes and our no be no, similar to God's word that does not change. According to verse 13, we ought to pray when we suffer, praise when we're cheerful, and pray when we're sick. Because we believe that the kingdom of heaven is a place of healing and our king is a healer. We pray with the conviction that God is capable of great things. That our prayer is a powerful thing. Yet we pray knowing that the great things God is doing might be through prolonged sickness. Through prolonged suffering. And in all these things... We trust that the kingdom of God is as close as it's ever been. And all these things we look forward to the day when our sighing and sorrow will flee away. And last but not least, we fight against sins. We fight against sin, not because that fight always works, not because we always, in every instance, come out on top in that battle, but because it is right. It is right to fight against sin. This is what John the Baptist did. It's why he was in prison and was ultimately beheaded. He called people to repentance, including King Herod himself. Many people heard John's message. They heard his fight against sin, his call to repentance, and many were prepared to follow Christ as a result. But that wasn't always the result. And yet we still fight against sin. We must fight against it wisely, understanding it as our enemy. Understanding that we, on our own, cannot defeat it. Remember Psalm 146, do not put your trust in princes. And yet in all of these things, understanding that sin has no place in the kingdom of heaven, which means it's no good at all. And we should do our very best to eradicate it wherever it is found, starting in our own lives. Be strong and courageous as you plod along. Praise the Lord as you work and patiently watch for his coming. Care for those around you. Pray for the sick and suffering. Our king makes the blind see the deaf hear and the lame walk. Salvation has begun. He is the king of heaven, the son of righteousness who comes with healing in his wings. There's a christmas song i love that is um, a bit different from most other christmas songs i know Uh, it's i believe it was originally released written in the late 2000s and it doesn't have the uh, joyful sound of a typical christmas carol but it's not sad it's not a sad song Uh, i imagine it's more like um, a song for a battlefield to sing as you're marching into battle to give you courage and so I'm going to close my sermon with the lyrics of this song. It's, this is war, like you ain't seen. This winter's long, it's cold and mean. With downcast hearts, we stood condemned. But the tide turns now at Bethlehem. This is war, and born tonight, the Word as flesh, the Lord of light, the Son of God. The low-born king whom demons fear, of whom angels sing. Hallelujah, a child is born. He is the rescue we've waited for. The throne of David he will restore and reign with mercy forevermore. This is war on sin and death. The dark will take its final breath. It shakes the earth, confounds all plans, the mystery of God as man. I did not expect to get choked up reading that. Jesus Christ is the one John the Baptist was waiting for. And he's the one we are hopefully, courageously, joyfully, and patiently waiting for today. Because it is war and it's war on sin and death. And praise God, darkness will take its final breath. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that the mission didn't end with him coming as a cute little baby. (laughs) The mission didn't end with him coming so we could see God with us in that way, see you with us in that way. Thank you that you sent your son into this world to crush the head of the serpent and to make darkness flee. And God, in a world that is filled with darkness and pain and suffering, sorrows and sighings, thank you that For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, you have been telling us that this is happening. And although hundreds and hundreds of years might feel like an awfully long time, thousands of years, God, they're nothing to you. And these things are as close today as they've ever been. And so I pray, God, that we would hear these words, know your word, know who you are, trust you are who you say you are, and that we would take courage, (laughs) take heart. In the healing that you bring, knowing that that healing is part of a wonderful salvation that you freely offer to us all. Thank you for your spirit bringing, death, or bringing life into death in all sorts of places. And thank you for the way that even in a church, not even, but in a church like ours or any church anywhere, we can see your work in the lives of people who are being changed and helped and lifted up. Father, we love you, we thank you, we pray all this in Christ's name, amen.